Stand with me, if you will, as we read the Bible reading for today. It's out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. The word of the Lord. God, as we stand here as foreigners and strangers, we look around us with all those that are here today. And let us remember, without the good news of peace and what Jesus did on the cross, we'd just be foreigners and strangers. Unify us through your spirit as we may love the person on the other end of our pew, the neighbors that are across the street from us, and those we may perceive on the other side of the tracks. Give David, our pastor, your peace as he delivers the message today. May we all give him the grace you've shown us, Lord. And thank you for the grace that David gives to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, JJ. In this True North series uh, that we're going to be spending the next few weeks in, we are going to be addressing a lot of big, hairy cultural issues that kind of swirl around us every day. Many of those issues I feel... um, incredibly ill-equipped to address. But fortunately, we do have a true north. We do have a fixed point. We can magnetize our compasses. We have the living, breathing Word of God as relevant today in East Nashville in 2019 as it was 2,000 years ago. We're going to spend the next few weeks diving into some of the things that scare us, finding that true north in the living, breathing Word of God. And as we do so, you're going to notice a pattern emerging. You'll notice that we get to talk about God's original intent, God's original plan. We're going to talk about how man, fallen, broken, sinful, messed it up. And we get to talk about how Jesus redeemed it. Finally, we get to ask the question, so what do we do now? We figured we'd start the series with kind of an easy topic, and that is the pursuit of racial unity in our world. Not a whole lot of layers to that. You know, pretty, pretty simple thing to wade into. Last week, we spent some time on those, those first two parts of the pattern. 
Looked at Revelation chapter 5 and, and the incredible picture of heaven and eternity and every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group together as one worshiping at the feet of our creator for all time. But we also looked at how that wasn't just a picture that's going to happen someday in the future, but it reflects God's original design all the way back in Genesis and creation, how God made each of us in his image uniquely, intentionally, with incredible diversity, which is to be celebrated because it is an an incredible reflection of his creativity and his beauty and his majesty. At the same time, in that diversity, he created us all as one, all as God's people. Yet, as we know, in the world we live in, that type of unity is not something we experience every day. That type of unity is not something we see in our everyday lives. Today, I want to spend a little bit of time doing a deep dive into that contrast, the contrast of God's original plan the perfect picture that we see in Revelation and the reality that we live in. And I want to spend some time talking about how Jesus redeems that. Jesus bridges that gap. And in doing so, we're going to spend some time in the first couple of chapters of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. Now, to get, to get an idea of exactly what Paul is talking about and who he's talking to, you want to know just a couple of things about first century Ephesus. It was a city that was important both in commerce and in culture. It's in modern day Turkey. It was a city that was largely, almost exclusively Gentile. There was a church there that had been planted and was growing, but like most churches, was not without its issues. A part of those issues were growing out of the fact that it was largely Gentile, and there was an incredible divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, in the New Testament, you you see that word Gentile. Sometimes you even see the word Greek. That that essentially just means non-Jews. As far as they were concerned at the time, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jewish and there were non-Jewish. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And never the twain shall meet. There was an incredible amount of distrust. There was persecution of the Jews on the part of the Gentiles. The Jews were, for lack of a better term, elitists, considering themselves separate and better as God's chosen people. They were clean. Gentiles were unclean. Jews did not think it appropriate to have any sort of a relationship with an unclean Gentile. There was a lot of division, and that even filtered into the early church. We see throughout Acts, there was an incredible debate about, are Gentiles even worthy of the gospel? Did Jesus even die for them? But aren't we God's chosen people? Isn't it just for us? There was a lot of controversy surrounding that. And and Ephesus was in many ways ground zero for that debate. Which is why, as Paul writes this letter, he writes those words that Carly read for us this morning as we were praying in in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Bear with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the context that Paul is writing into. Now, after kind of setting the foundation and giving an introduction in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in chapter 2, Paul wants to make sure that he knows, that he knows, that he knows that the believers in Ephesus understand the plan of salvation, starting in chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, let's just, let's just lower that boom right at the beginning. Paul was really good at, you know, starting his letters out with a boom. And he says, Hey, just want to make sure you guys are all aware that you were dead in your sins. Moving on, uh, he, he establishes that fact. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead, you are saved by grace. So right at the beginning, Paul establishes, you were dead in your sin, you were spiritually dead. But God, rich in mercy through Jesus Christ, has made you alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. One of the most beautiful, powerful, important verses in the entire Bible. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Ladies and gentlemen, that right there is the plan of salvation. You were spiritually dead in your sin. You have been made alive by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn it. There is nothing you can do. It is not of your own power. It is a free gift of God. All you have to do is receive it. That is the plan of salvation. We were separate from our creator, and through Jesus, we have been reconciled. God made a way. If you have never heard that before, hear it this morning. You are loved and valued so much by the creator of the universe that he sent his son to die for you. There is nothing you can do to reach God, but God has come down to reach you. That is the plan of salvation. But Paul, in that first chapter in Ephesians 1, as he's laying the foundation, as he's giving his introduction to this letter, he kind of hints at there is more to Christ's work, there's more to the purpose of Christ's work for human salvation than simply this vertical reconciliation with our Creator, than simply giving new spiritual life to those that were spiritually dead in their sin. That is the plan of salvation. There is more to it. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 9 and 10. He, God, made known to us the mystery of His will. According to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth 
in him. The plan of salvation gives us this vertical reconciliation. This eternal picture of our life with our creator. This this bridge that was built for us. But so often, we as Christ followers think about eternal life as something that begins after we die. We think about eternity as as something in the future. But what Paul is telling the Ephesians in this letter, what Paul is telling us this morning, is that this amazing work of Jesus, this amazing work of reconciliation, is for eternity, it is for our life in heaven, it is also for things on earth Today, it is a vertical reconciliation. It is a horizontal reconciliation. Now, creation, our planet, will not be completely restored on this side of Jesus' return. But that does not mean it has not yet begun. Revelation 5, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people group, as one unified, begins today. As John Ortberg so beautifully put it, eternity is now in session, and it's the work of Jesus Christ that has ushered in that eternity, and it's exactly what Paul begins to talk about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, that section 11 through 22. Paul, as a good pastor, divides it into three points. Now, they don't all start with the same letter, so he wouldn't be a very good Baptist pastor, but the structure is largely the same. And it starts in verse 11 with this word, with these words, at one time, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcised by those called circumcised. At, At one time, you Gentiles were labeled as other by the Jews. You were labeled as different. They didn't even call you by name because they didn't consider you worthy of it. You were separate and different. And then in verse 12, he gives them the sober, sobering realization of what that meant in practical application. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, Foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's pretty brutal. Paul establishes at one time, all of you were separated from God, from each other, and you were without hope. But then in verse 13, Paul gives us the pivot. At one time, you were separate and without hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. 
At one time you were separate and without hope. But now through Christ Jesus you were brought near. Through Christ Jesus you have not only found peace. You have he who is peace. And by his blood he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, right now you're thinking, wow, that's, that, that is a pretty powerful word picture that Paul paints, tearing down this dividing wall of hostility. But, but the readers in Ephesus, the readers in the first century church, that would have been a very vivid picture because it was tangible. It was real. We've talked a lot in this room about the first century temple. The temple complex was a massive complex that sat on a hill above Jerusalem. I think I've got a picture of it. If you look, if you look at that temple complex, we would call the whole thing the temple in general. But in reality, it's that building in the middle. That's the temple. And at the very heart of that building is the Holy of Holies you might have heard of. The Holy of Holies was so exclusive, only one person, the high priest, got to go into that room. And he got to go into that room only once a year. Outside of the Holy of Holies, you had the courtyard of the priests. Outside of that, you had the courtyard of the Israelites, where, where uh, ritually clean Jewish men could go. Outside of that, you had the courtyard of women, where all Jews could go. And outside of that, you had this massive, larger courtyard known as the courtyard of Gentiles. Now, when we read stories about Jesus teaching in the temple, Jesus overturning the tables, it's in that massive courtyard that those things happened. And when I say massive, we're talking about multiple football fields large. The reason Jesus was teaching there is because the courtyard of Gentiles was open to all. It was largely a a bazaar, a marketplace. It was a gathering place for the people of Jerusalem, especially during high holidays like Passover. Everyone would come and fill that place. But but if you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go beyond that. Because as you started to get into the inner courtyards, there was a wall that would stop you. And on the wall, there was an inscription. This tablet has that inscription. It's in Greek. Because the Gentiles, many of which wouldn't have been able to read Hebrew. And if you don't read ancient Greek this morning, this is roughly what it says. No one of another nation may enter within this fence or this wall. And it ends with this ominous phrase. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death. Gentiles were in the courtyard of Gentiles. If they wanted to enter, there was a literal wall of hostility beyond which was certain death. Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his blood, tore down the wall of hostility so that all people had access to him and to each other.
at one time, you were separate, separate from God, separate from one another, without hope. But now, the wall of hostility has been torn down by Jesus Christ, and in him we have peace. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. At one time, you were separate without hope, but now you have peace in Jesus and access. So then, we are members, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and members of God's house, members of the same family. When, when Paul talks about this vertical reconciliation with our creator and the horizontal reconciliation with each other, he is not saying Jesus did all of this so that you can coexist. He is not saying Jesus did all of this so that people that look different, sound different, of different cultures, different nations, different tribes, different tongues, different people groups, so that you can all exist in the same place without hostility. He said Jesus did all of this, and because of this, you are one Family. You are one blood. All of the barriers have been broken down. At one time, but now, so then. We recognize most of us, this on a mental level. But do our lives reflect it? If we are truly defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ, we must recognize there is nothing about ourselves that is any better, that is any more worthy, that is any more valued than anyone else. You know, when Nick and I were moving back into Nashville a couple of years ago, as, as crazy as the market is now, in 2017, it was stupid. It was just stupid. It was that time where, where you kind of had to know a realtor because you had to put in an offer on a house the day before it went on the market because if it went on the market, there were already seven offers that were above asking price. We had a very short window of time to find a house. We felt very strongly that to, to minister in this community, that we needed to live in this community, so our time was limited and our geographic search was limited. We were inside a million homes. Uh, Nick had this 
picture of kind of that perfect 1930s craftsman on one of these tree-lined sidewalk streets in Lachlan Springs with a gigantic front porch. And, you know, we would sit there, sit there and sip on our drinks and wave at our neighbors, and that was going to be our life. And that wasn't really an option for us, we found out. Um, So we had a lot of houses we tried to get into, but we just couldn't quite get there. And there was always this one house that was there was going to be plan B or plan C or plan D. And plan D finally came to fruition. The good news was we had been led to a house and it was in the neighborhood and it was going to be great. Bedrooms for both our kids. The open kitchen that we always wanted. A backyard about the size of this table. But it was there, and it was ours, and we could stop worrying about it. And after we went under contract, I remember talking to Nick, and I said, well, Nick, we got our house. What do you think? She said, well, I don't hate it. (laughs) Not really a ringing endorsement for the home that we were going to make for ourselves. As followers of Christ, we are called to so much more than not hating. How many of us say racism is not my problem? Because I don't hate those people, I don't hate them. So that's someone else's battle to fight. As followers of Christ, as image bearers of the creator of the universe, the bar is set so much higher than not hate. The question becomes, all right, Hannah, I get it. It doesn't look like it was designed to look. It doesn't look like it will look one day. But what can I possibly do about it? Well, it can start with knowing and being known by people that don't look like you. People that don't sound like you. People that are maybe from a different background, a different culture, speak a different language. It can start by celebrating the image of God in those people. Those people that you haven't quite figured out how to bridge that gap. Recognition that Jesus has bridged that gap for you. Maybe it starts... By quitting using language like those people to begin with. But with all of that, we also must recognize it's uncomfortable, it's complicated. There are layers upon layers, it can get awkward, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to start. I get it. 
Don't hear me saying there is an easy fix. Step one, step two, step three, racial unity. It doesn't work that way. The good news is we are blessed to live in an incredibly dynamic and diverse community. We are blessed to have amazing opportunities around us to celebrate this, to speak into this. And we're blessed to have relationships with people that are doing it every single day. To that end, I am honored to bring up my friend Will Acuff. Will, come up here for just a second. Will is a member of our East Nashville community. Good morning, everybody. It's always great when the pastor says, can you come talk on the race day? Yeah. Um, Will, to that end, tell me exactly why I might have called you to talk on that race day. Uh, yeah, so I'll say up front, I, I just want to echo your sentiment that there is no simple fix and there's no one, two, three, and then kumbaya moment for everybody. And I'm not here to say I'm a white guy who's going to explain racism, right? Like, so please don't hear anything that we talk about from that lens. Um, but the reason why David uh, called me is because alongside my wife, uh, Tiffany Acuff, we uh, founded something called Corner to Corner um, that started in East Nashville, is now citywide, but is a uh, Christ-centered nonprofit that exists to extend um, the hope of Jesus in gospel word and loving deed. Uh, and what that looks like is creating opportunities uh, for neighbors, kids all the way up to uh, adults and grandparents and great-grandparents, uh, opportunities for those neighbors to thrive um, in a city that is often very challenging for some of our community members. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Nashville, um, a lot of that looks like loving and serving and walking alongside of our black and brown neighbors. That's what it looks like. It looks like becoming an ally um, over many years. We've been off of Dickerson Road now for 13 years. We love our neighborhood and our community, and we love Nashville. And that's, I think, why you called me. Yeah, that's, that, that, if that's it exactly wasn't why it, I've called then I don't know what we're going to um, talk about. And I have had several opportunities to, to sit across a table from you, um, borrow some of your experiences, learn from what you and Tiffany are doing, um, the relationships you're building, the way you are celebrating the diversity that we have and the diversity that God created. Um, One of the things you've talked to me a lot about is kind of the difference between bigotry and racism. Why is that distinction so important? Yeah, um, this has been a really important uh, thought for me to wrestle with over the years. Um, And this is coming from the work of a lot of really good sociologists. If you want to, you know, hear more about the books I'm pulling this from, come see me after service. Um, But it's the idea that bigotry is that one-on-one, like I am saying awful things about someone who doesn't look like me, sound like me, you know, um, have my same socioeconomic experience, right? That that bigotry is that one-to-one thing. 
thing, and that can look very different depending on what we're talking about, right? Uh, that, that's, there's endless flavors of bigotry, unfortunately. Mm. Um, racism, uh, as some of these sociologists define it and how I've come to agree to define it, is more when you talk about there are dominant uh, forces and, and dominant people groups in whatever country we're talking about, and there are people who are not dominant, right? Just meaning like raw numbers. Um, who's in the room that's making the decisions? Who has uh, the power, etc.? Um, and so understanding that racism is more of a system that has been put in place by the people with the power, um, that it's naturally making decisions that benefit them, not necessarily towards any nefarious you know, other thing potentially, but if you put 10 white guys in a room, um, and this is historically the way we've done things in America, we put 10 white men in a room, they're going to make decisions that benefit them just naturally, right? Um, and so racism is more of a systematic uh, thing is how I've come to understand it. So that's why we can have a city like Nashville, a booming economy, right? Everyone's like, man, I love it. Uh, and yet the unemployment rate for African-American neighbors is far higher than it is for white neighbors. Why we have 99% of our gross domestic product produced in Nashville, right? Our GDP is produced by white-owned firms, even though uh, they only represent 72% of the population, right? That doesn't happen in a vacuum. So that's what I would mean uh, in terms of the difference there. Okay. So what about, uh, what about that person that, that hears you say these things yeah. and says, okay, I'm not a bigot. Check. Yeah. Job done. I did yeah. it. Um, and they also say, I recognize the statistics you're using exist. Yeah. They're not my fault. I didn't put those 10 men in that room. Absolutely, yeah. So what does this have to do with me? Yeah, I, I think if you are not a Christ follower, you get to ask that question, right? But I think if you're a Christ follower, you don't get to ask that question, right? Because a Christ follower says, my life is not about me, mm. A Christ follower says, I don't need to defend myself, my position, my power, my prosperity, right? A Christ follower says, no, no, no. I was called to die to self while serving out my family and my neighbor, mm. right? So that is a different question that we have to start asking, right? So then as a Christ follower, I go, man, what would it look like to actually listen to my neighbor and learn from their experience before I get angry or defensive or say, your experience can't be true because it goes against mine, right? And so I think a Christ follower has to start from a different position and one that's honestly informed by uh, tenderness, compassion, love, right? All the things you just talked about out of Ephesians, right? Because one of the things that's interesting about that passage he just quoted was that it g doesn't stop there. It says Christ is the cornerstone building this thing together with us. Mm. We can't be built together if we're never together, Amen. Yeah. right? I can't go, man, I love my neighbor from all the way over here. Good luck, mm -hmm. right? Like, no, no, I actually need to know you. I need to know your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your kids' names. Yeah. So uh, I'm starting to wonder why I preached at all. I could have just set you right here. And <laughs> I get fired up. That's why my wife didn't come today. She's like, I know who you're going to be. No. Um, I, I hear all of those things. I recognize all of those things. Yeah. 
there are those of us that are just now coming to understand the contrast between God's design and God's plan and reality. How does one start on that personal journey? All of the things you talk about, these, these uh, relationships. I, I, somebody out there is thinking, that's great, Will, but I don't even know how to begin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would start by just this simple idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Like, I'd Somebody love, should write that down. Yeah, it, it turns out it was a big one, right? Uh, kind of one of those bold print Bible verses. Uh, but that idea, what I love about it so much is Jesus doesn't say, stop loving yourself, mm-hmm. right? No, he actually says, hey, the fact that from the minute your feet hit the floor, you are bending the world around you. To provide you more peace, prosperity, and comfort. That's not a bad thing. The problem is your circle is too small. Mm. Right? Draw that circle wider so that it doesn't just focus on you and your kids. But focuses on your neighbor and your neighbor's kids. Not just your economic future, but your neighbor's economic future. So I think the first thing that we can all do is start with like literally our physical environment. Where in the world do you live? Do you actually know your actual neighbors, right? I think we live in a moment in history where it's like, yeah, I know everybody online. We're on the same apps. Like, doesn't count. All right, I'm just going to say that. Like, physically get to know a neighbor, right? That'd be the first thing. Whether they're like you or not, get practiced at that. Um, And as that goes, think about that from your work and your office life, right? Whatever you do in the world, whatever um, calling and talents and giftings the Lord has given you, You will have opportunity, especially in those contexts, to cross racial lines, Mm. right? Um, Lean in. Ask good questions. Be a better listener than a talker, right? Um, Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And what I mean is, like, I've been, I can't tell you how many times I've been in rooms where I am the only white guy, and I, at first, felt extremely awkward. Like, suddenly didn't know what to do with my hands, Right? And I realized, oh my gosh, I've never been the minority and I'm sweating a lot mm-hmm. right now. Right? And to go, oh, that's okay. It's okay for me not to know what to say. It's okay for me not to know what to do perfectly because I am in Christ. Like, I can't mess this up beyond Christ's ability to heal, yeah, to yeah. love, and to bring people together. Um, and it takes the pressure off of my shoulders. And ultimately, I'm just a servant of the Lord and not the one who's actually trying to solve this. Like, Jesus wasn't like, hey, Will, it's your turn on the cross. Right? No, no. He, he did that. Awesome. If those of us in this room only heard one thing today, what would that be? Man, that's, uh, that's one, a lot that of pressure. Did. I just took the weight off my shoulders and <laughs> put it back on. Uh, I I think the one thing I would say is remembering that when we are in Christ, um, that the biggest, most important question that we will ever wrestle with in our existence has already been answered, right? We have that joy and that freedom and that peace, and we can carry that into these discussions. I don't have to solve it instantly. I don't have to fix you. I could actually be still, be present, and be a listener Rather than someone who um, either goes in with the pressure that I've got to save this or fix this in the next five minutes or less, 
or that pressure of, no, 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 you must be wrong because you're challenging everything that I believe, right? But in Christ, we have the freedom to actually be still enough to listen and to lean towards neighbor in love. Beautiful. Will, I am grateful for you. I'm grateful for your wife, uh, your humility, willingness to learn. What you are doing in our community is fantastic. Thank you. It is my prayer for us that we would be as diligent in our pursuit of elevating the diversity and beauty of, of God's people, those imprinted with his image. Do you mind if I pray for you? Yeah, and before we do, can I just say real quick, guys, if you are curious about these things, if you want to get more connected or you're on a journey yourself trying to uh, wrestle with these issues, corner to corner, uh, my wife just launched something called The Coalition. And the whole idea there is it's like a book club and a kind of listen to podcasts, listen to sermons, and wrestle with these ideas together in community. So if that sounds like something you're interested, um, come see me, and I'll make sure you get her contact info. Absolutely. Lord, we are humbled and amazed to be sitting in your presence this morning. Grateful that your presence isn't limited to this building, but it permeates every corner of our lives. We're grateful for your call to your children, Will and Tiffany. And we recognize that your call is not limited to them. As they enter into your service, so might we. Give us eyes to see every person as you created them in your image. And give us the courage to walk in the victory you have already won. It is in your son's name and by his work that we pray these things. Amen.